the passage being read for us this morning as we move towards our time in the text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. I'll read the text for you, or uh, you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. But I'll read the text for you before Pastor Dan comes. Uh, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And This word is the good news that was preached to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for, as we sing, pilgrims on a narrow way. Uh, increasingly, as we pass our time, as we age, as we begin families, as we consider children, we consider our own providence, uh, it increasingly feels more narrow. Uh, courage must rise. And so we ask that you would use Lord's Day each time to build our courage, help our faith, strengthen us to be nourished on the pilgrim's way, that we would have a time as this to come to the word of the Lord that endures forever, find out just how much we spend our energies, worries, and concerns, anxieties on things that are fading away. Help us. Help us with this ordinary means to extraordinarily be changed, to be aided in the courage that we need to put our energy and values where things will remain. Help us to do so. Pray for Pastor Dan as he comes then to speak to us from this text. That it'll do the same for him. That all of us, your people in this moment, are underneath the weight of it. So strengthen us, uphold us, confront us. Give us the grace of repentance to endeavor after a life of new obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. meant to update earlier, but I will now. I know many people have prayed for um, my father-in-law, Greg Bays. He made it home this week on Wednesday, which is a huge answer to prayer. The doctors said the explanation they could find was just an army of people praying for him, but the Lord's brought him to this point. So he still has a long haul to go, but um, after being in the hospital for some time, about the middle of November um, until this past Wednesday, uh, thankful for your guys' prayer, thankful for the answers to prayer in that way. Often we pray, we forget to recognize and thank the Lord for his answers, so we want to do that. First Peter, we come to the end of chapter 1 of First Peter. I trust that this has been uh, as good a study for you as it has been for me to this point. Chapter 1 of First Peter paints for us an identity of who we are in Christ. We are elect Exiles, And it paints together these two themes and ideas of what it means to be hidden in Christ, what it means to be born again, what it means to live life according to the abundant mercy of his sovereign grace. And it paints that picture for us, and then it paints alongside of it what it then, as these elect, as those who are hidden in Christ, as those who have been made new by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what it means to walk in this age that is passing away, to not belong to this earth, but belong to a heavenly kingdom. 
and what then we might expect and what then that might look like for us. So in a culture that's kind of always searching for identity, always trying to figure out who exactly we are and how we fit in and what is our identity, the Lord gives us this through Peter in chapter 1. This is our identity. We are children of God, sojourners on this earth. And here generally is what your life is going to look like and what will be produced and, and asked of you as elect exiles. As we come then to this, the last part of 1 Peter, there's four commands that Peter gives to us. We've looked at three of them. We'll look at the last one this morning. In verse 13, he, he, he tells us to hope in God at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that, that our hope is grounded in the grace of God. This call to hope, it's, a, it's both an outflow of everything that God has promised, but it's also a command to us that our hope is in grace. Not sort of some subjective hope on something that might happen, but something that looks back to a past reality of gospel events and looks forward to future promises secured for us. That sort of hope. So he tells you hope in God. The second command is that you would be holy as he is holy. And again, we see through the text that it is both sort of this outflowing, the, this natural um, work of sanctification that will happen by the grace of God for those that he has set apart for salvation. And yet he calls you to action in it, that you would be sober-minded, that you would be serious in your pursuit of holiness, that your life would look like a sojourner's life and not one that is given over to mirror the culture that we live in, that our comforts and our acceptance and our hopes aren't planted in, in earthly things that fade away. The next command that he gives us is that we would conduct ourselves as exiles, that we would conduct ourselves in fear. That there would be an awe and a reverence and respect to our Lord. Boiled down that, that we would fear our king more than we fear man. That we would look for comfort and acceptance in our God. Not in the approval and the comfort and acceptance that our neighbor can offer us. And so what do we fear? We, we fear living life as people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And then live in a way that that doesn't matter. Or as Hebrews would say, that we trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. And, and so we have a fear of that, that, that the elect exiles that we are, that we would live that way. And then the fourth command that we read this morning that you just heard is that we would love one another. That we would love one another just like Galatians, like many places in Scripture, as it speaks of God's work and God's grace in our lives and bring us together, it then pours over into our relationship one to another, and it often ends this way. I think Galatians 5 does the same thing, that it ends up as faith working through love. And so this call to love one another. So what I want to do this morning is, is just look at that one command, that we love one another, but first... I want to back up a little bit and see how we get there. I've heard, I'm not a mystery novel writer, but I've heard that there's kind of a, a single format that people use, authors use when they're writing a mystery novel. Or maybe uh, someone who's writing a script for that kind of like whodunit type of TV show or movie. 
And so what they do is they sort of first get their cast of characters. You can picture that in any sort of movie. You have your, your six, eight people, your cast of characters. And then the author moves to the very end and comes up with the conclusion of the story. You know, the housekeeper poisoned his bourbon. That's how he dies, whatever it might be. And so you get the conclusion of the story. And so then from there, the author starts moving backwards. What's the final clue that helps people understand it? Well, that's what they develop next. And then from there, clues that get more general, and they scatter those clues throughout the story. And so then you as a reader come into it, and you have these characters, and you start reading things that are happening, some events, and you're not sure if they're clues, you don't know how they relate together, and it gets narrower, narrower, narrower to the end. Peter, I, I think, I, I, whether he's intentionally doing that or not, I think we can look at the text that way this morning and be helpful to us. That here's the conclusion of the matter. Love one another. Well, well how do we get there? How do we sort of take some steps back and, and put the pieces together that end with this impossible command to love one another? What does that look like for us? And so we'll simply look at those steps through the text and then take a few minutes to look at what it means to love one another. Verse 22, having purified your souls. So there's our first clue back, having purified your souls. What does that mean exactly? First of all, it, it's a statement of something that has already happened. This is past tense. So he's not telling you, like, right now, purify yourselves. But he's looking back, that, that having been purified, having your souls purified. So it's already taken place. And so we think back, what does that mean? What does that look like? How have we been purified? Well, the immediate context before is that we are purified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless, perfect lamb of God. And that imagery of the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorposts. And as God would look down, he would see that household as clean because of the blood over the door. And so we see that with ourselves as we have been cleansed, we have been purified in at least a double sense. We have been purified by the perfect, powerful blood of Jesus Christ that we have in the sense of our God sees us hidden in Christ. That we are declared righteous. And then as Peter de develops all the way from verse 1 on about those who have been chosen before known that God is working in them sanctification and he is, is working and producing that purification, that holiness in them. You remember we've seen this word before. It is that we see how this purification has taken place. I won't belabor it because I have a couple times already. But through the trials of life. That's how we are purified. That's how God is working in that. That he's taken the, the blood of the lamb and he has cleansed us and he has washed us and he sees us as holy. And then day to day as we live our pilgrim's journey as necessary, purposeful and various trials come into our life. And we've said that, that example is just as the, the fire heats up under that gold and the impurities rise to the surface so that they can be cleaned off. Trials work in our life in the same way. That, that hidden idols and hidden securities and secret sins rise to the top through the midst of trials. And God is gracious in them, and he purifies us through that in order that 
that we might better reflect the glory of God, becoming holy as he is holy. In order for our testimony to others, in order to share in that glory. So having purified yourself, looking back, this is something that has happened, and it has happened through the work of the gospel within your heart, that your hearts, your souls have been purified. And so he takes then another step back. Having purified your souls, how? By your obedience to the truth. Now, we have to understand this phrase in context so we don't suddenly shift to some sort of merit-based sense of becoming a pure heart, that it is based upon your performance. So understand that, that this isn't obedience to the law, or you obeyed a specific command. It's obedience to the truth. I think we can develop easily that the truth here in context is the gospel. And obedience to the truth is faith and hope in the gospel. Faith and hope in the gospel. Why, why do I say that? Let me get, point out a few reasons here. Hopefully it will be uh, convincing for you. So first we see, just read how verse 22 two reads. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The, the, the command is love. Being obedient to the truth produces love. Oh, being obedient to the truth results in this kind of love. Loving your neighbor isn't part of the obedience. It isn't the command that you are obedient to. The loving your neighbor, loving your brother, is a, res is a result, an, an outflow of obedience to the truth. Does that make sense? So we, we have been purified by obedience to the truth. And this obedience results in our ability to love. Galatians 5, 5 and 6. I'll just read you a turn there, but I remember, if you remember as we went through that, several months ago now, but it says, for, the, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It is that faith and that hope in God that begins to produce love for one another. Look at verse 23. As, as another, okay, maybe a second reason to, uh, to understand obedience to the truth as faith and hope in the gospel. Verse 23. Well, we begin to read 22 and 23 together for context. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. I think this, having been born again and obedience to the truth, are working together. Not the exact same thing, but they are working together to, to sandwich this command to love our brothers. To see that, that it's obedience to the truth that produces this. And this love is coming from something that God has done. Again, born again. And so it's sandwiched here with two promises of, of what is produced in our life. Back to verse 21, what immediately 
flows, comes before our text today. Again, just another reason to understand it this way. Verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Immediately after that, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, faith and hope are in God. What is it that the gospel, the gospel doesn't demand of us, it provides. And what does it provide for us? What is the call of the gospel? Faith, the hope and rest in the truth of the gospel and God's accomplishments for us. That is obedience to the truth, obedience to the gospel. Back in verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, and he goes on, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. And so what we see here is this faith that God is giving us, that, that our response of faith, our response of hope, and our response of rest in the gospel is not just passive assent that it's real or it's true. It is active, living, obedient faith. You cannot separate the two. There's a different definition for obedience, a different definition for faith, but they belong together when it comes to our response to the gospel in our lives. That it is living faith, that it is fruit-producing faith in our lives, that this obedience that resting in and believing and hoping in are active ways that we respond to the gospel. So this love that is produced in our hearts, this command to love for one another, comes from a purified heart. We see the work of God doing that. We take a step back as we are believing and obeying and, and, and have living faith in the truth, the gospel. That has to come before this brotherly love. But what, as we back up even further, stands behind that? Again, I'll begin reading in verse 22 just for context. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. New birth. Again, God's sovereign act of mercy and grace has to take place in our lives before we ever get down the road to a place where we love one another. We've seen how we're born again. First, the, Peter points us back to a past reality. That is the gospel. Uh, verse 3, according to his abundant mercy, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's assumed there, and Peter goes on to develop it later. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead assumes he came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a death, and his resurrection shows that he beat Sin, he conquered it. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the final enemy. He is risen, which assures that we will be risen, that we have a living hope of rebirth to new life. And so we acknowledge that each one of us are 
dead in transgression and sin. Every one of us. That our eyes are blind and we're dull of hearing and God must penetrate that and give life. He must give regeneration. Totally a one-sided work of God. That he gives life to the dead. That he gives sight to the blind. And that should produce humility and, and gratefulness. And so he speaks of a past way in which he secures. This is the reality that secures new birth for us to be born again. But the born again he's talking about right now happens in time. It's currently happening. Secured in the past and yet he is causing us to be born again right now. Through the proclamation of the word. As it goes forth he gives life. He speaks into dead hearts and he gives life. Which does lead us then to the final point of this passage moving back how then is this new life how is this born again how is this happening in our lives through the past reality and it's verse 23 he would tell us since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god for all flesh he quotes isaiah 40 here all flesh is like grass all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And he adds this on it. This is the word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. The guy gives new birth, and it's grounded in the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he uses means right now to produce that new life in us, and it is the proclamation of God's word. It is the living and the abiding word. Isaiah 40, as Peter quotes that, Isaiah speaking to people who are going through difficult times, who are experiencing all kinds of... of uh, suffering on their own. And Isaiah 40, I, I think it has that idea of, of that you just want something tangible and pretty to, to, to hold on to. So whether it's the, the blooming flower or the grass of the field, I, I think pointing us to just things that are attractive, things that are pretty, things that have a momentary glory to them. And we just, our tendency is let's put our hope in that. Now as Isaiah is saying, that fades, that goes away, but the promises of God, the word of God, it abides forever. It is eternal. Peter has come back to this theme again and again with the imperishable nature of God's promises to us as elect exiles. If you remember, he goes all the way back and as he describes our inheritance at the beginning of First Peter, he, he describes it as imperishable, unfading, it's kept for us. Later, as he moves along, he describes our faith as imperishable, as he contrasts it with gold, which perishes, compared to your faith, which is precious and eternal and lasts. He continues, he, he looks at it again as our ransom as being imperishable. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
Our ransom was, was paid for with imperishable, perfect blood. Our redemption is imperishable. And now he comes back to the word that we stand on as imperishable. Now just think who he's writing to. He, he's writing to sojourners. People exiled. They've, they've been kicked out. There's no stability in their life. Their faith is, is wavering. Everything that they knew, everything that was planted in, in their families, in their lives, in the lands they owned, the, the, the jobs they had in a very natural way, and now even in a spiritual way as they look back on their heritage, whether it's the Greeks with, with a pagan type of heritage or the Jews and the tradition, whatever it is, it, it's all like leaves now just blowing about in the wind. And he's calling these elect exiles to courage and to faith. And there's so much instability and so much uncertainty and so much danger and, and no promise of protection from that physical danger. So where, how can you have sure hope? How can you have living hope? How can you obey the command at hope and grace? So Peter tells him, I have something that is wholly sure, completely sure, that is imperishable, that is unfading. From beginning to end, the promises of God are unfading. The inheritance that he is keeping for you is unfading. He promises to keep your faith, to keep you and guard you so that you will receive that. He's redeemed you with blood of the lamb that is, is perfect and eternal without blemish. It, it is completely without error. Once for all, you won't ever need something new. And this word of God, the means that by which you enter into life, through, through hearing the word, responding to it, it, it will last forever. It is imperishable. What a good word for us as, as we grasp at stability in the uncertainty of life. As we look for approval for others to find some sort of sense of identity. As we just kind of mirror what's around us and look for comfort and all that. We weren't made to find comfort here. We weren't made to find our identity here. Because God has an absolutely solid, um, imperishable inheritance waiting for us. And everything he's done to seal our destiny there is imperishable. That is surety in the midst of unknown. That is surety in the midst of instability. a good word for us as preachers to think when the word goes forth we just be like ah we need to spice it up <laughs> what's a new fad what's a new way of of getting people because this is we do the same thing week after week and you know does it make sense that god would use ordinary men to get up and talk about an ancient book and that's going to like produce life in people yes <laughs> It endures forever. Yeah, we, we have to be wise how we take God's word and apply it to current situations and, and new things that we face. But we don't need a different word. It's not outdated that it somehow can't, can't answer the questions of today's culture, that somehow can't give us stability and hope and guidance in today's world. Everything else that seems shiny, that looks cool, that... That, that kind of attracts people. It fades and it dies like flowers, like the leaves. Don't put your hope in that. 
The word of the Lord lasts forever. It almost feels like too simple of an application to make, but are you in the word? (laughs) It gives life. It lasts forever. Don't ignore it. Don't spend all your time on social media or in TV shows and movies that suck your life away. Look to the word. It is, it is life-giving, life-abiding, specifically the gospel. You see how Peter has developed that? That it, it's the word made flesh who has come. And then as he talks about the word being proclaimed, he talks about the prophets. And they spoke through the spirit of Christ. Things they longed to fully understand and fully know. But they realized the message was for you, for me, for you, not just for them. The angels who were ministers to them, they, they even longed to be the, the target of God's, uh, of God's redemptive plan, and, and they envy us. And then Peter says, that same spirit, it empowers the word right now. It empowers the proclamation of the gospel right now. The same spirit, as Amos said, that, that lion that roared in the prophetic voice roars in the gospel right now this life giving word as we get through all of it Peter says this is the word that was proclaimed to you give ourselves to the word alright so that was our mystery novel there all all the pieces how did we get here but where did we get to love one another and so just in the last couple minutes we'll move it through it quickly here how do we love one another. It gives three sort of qualifiers to this love. You know, again, in this this journey of elect exiles, we're not meant to do it alone. The, The community of faith exists to walk through it together. The first way he qualifies this love, he calls it brotherly love. It's within a covenant relationship to to understand and to see ourselves as as equals in the sense of we're all journeying through this together as sinful, incomplete people. Scripture is clear in other places to love your neighbor and that your neighbor is literally everyone. More specifically, the person God puts right in front of you. And you have the Good Samaritan and and how it's, it's love without discrimination. And, and so we love our neighbor. And yet the Bible also speaks clearly to a brotherly love that we owe one another, to fellow exiles, and specifically locally gathered together, that God is saving people, electing and saving people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And yet out of all of that, he's brought this group together who is right here or watching online, he's brought us together to love one another and make our pilgrim's journey together. And it's my responsibility that you make it to the finish line. It's your responsibility that I make it to the finish line. We do that through brotherly love. It's also a testimony to the world abroad in that John says that, by this the world will know that God sent the Son We believe in that son by our love for one another. So it is within a context beyond just loving your neighbor. It is brotherly and sisterly love 
and not just a, a pastor to a congregant. It's as equals, as sojourners together, that we have this love for one another. This journey was not meant to be walked alone. Then we see two other ways that it is modified. He calls it a sincere brotherly love. Literally an unhypocritical love. The Greek word, maybe you've heard this before, the Greek word, phonetically, it sounds like hypocrite. And it's the word that was used in the realm of a theater or in plays. So when the person comes to play their part, they get their mask, they put their mask on, this is the part that they play, they are a hypocrite. And so when we think of the hypocrite in this sense, it's not someone who, you know, says you need to be obedient, but even they're sometimes obedient. We're all hypocrites in that way. None of us walk through this life with unmixed motives. If we love our brother as perfectly as we can, it's still not going to be always as it should be with unmixed motives. He's talking about sincere in the sense of it's not fake. It's not playing a part. That you walk into church and you put on your mask of like, oh, I love everybody. And then you walk out and, and you just sizzle everybody. <laughs> you get on social media and you know, master the passive-aggressive post and well, whatever it might be. A, a genuine, sincere love where you expose your, your faults and your insecurities and you engage others in it. It's the exact opposite of, of flattery or of a love that is self-serving, that is calculating of, well, I'll say just enough to make sure that if, you know, they don't get mad at me, and if I need help at some point, I, and, and this sort of calculating love. No, a sincere love. It's not playing a part. It doesn't come from a perfect heart. It's not offered to people who are perfect. It, it, it can be whatever, but it's a sincere love that, that loves in difficult times and loves in good times and, and doesn't base love on just how naturally we're alike or how much I desire to hang out with you. But a love that sees we've been saved for this, we've been born again and set apart and brought into this community for this, to, to move together to our imperishable uh, inheritance. And the God is keeping us, and part of the way he is keeping us is by us loving one another. And we walk through those trials. We do it with love one for another. Sincerity. A love that risks. And then the last way that he calls our love here is sincere brotherly love. Then love one another earnestly. I think this is the hard one. Er, er, well, they're all hard. Er, earnestly. Unremitting, fervent, persevering. If you've been around people for a long time, I know Dan Chick, he pastored the same church for 20-some years, and my dad's been at churches for a lengthy time. It's hard to sustain relationships for a long time. That's why people jump churches all the time, because you kind of come, there's excitement, it feels good, but pretty soon there's too much water under the bridge, and you remember that time that your feelings got hurt a little bit, and you remember that time that you should have reached out and you didn't, and you know, when we met, we were kind of in the same life situation, but you got married and had kids, and I didn't, and so now I don't really like you that much. You know, whatever it might be, it's hard to have persevering love. 
when people go through low spots in their life and they're there longer than you think they should be. It's like, come on, just move on. This sort of love is love that doesn't just sort of wait around and when something easy pops up. It, it is love that is motivated, that seeks out opportunity and need and goes after it. That recognizes the risk that that might involve. It might not, love might not be returned. You might say something loving that isn't easy to say and it might not be received well. You might love people in really difficult and dark times and they might not appreciate it the way you wished that they had. Whatever it might be. It's love, though, that, that looks for opportunity, that moves into action and care, and that lasts. We have folks leave the church from time to time and to find a new congregation. and um, Something that often you hear, and I don't want to be defensive, there's probably a rebuke in it, and there have been times, obviously, that session could have been done a better job reaching out to people, but often you'll hear something like, well, I just don't have any friends here. People don't, you know, reach out to me. And we all sort of have this view in our hearts we have to battle of the brotherly love we expect from others compared to the brotherly love we show to others. To where it's not like I'm picking a seat right here at the end of the service and sitting here with a frown on my face and seeing, is anyone going to come talk to me? Nope. Nobody likes me. That's, brotherly love is, is motivated. It, it engages others. It, it takes the point of, of action. It doesn't just consider how you want everybody to treat you. It's you go and you treat others with that risky, persevering, unremitting brotherly love that isn't hinged on we have the same interests. Or our lives follow the exact same trajectory. Or whatever it might be. <clears throat> when you hear that, it sounds great, but it, it's impossible. that's an impossible way to be apart from tracking back that we have been born again to a living hope. God then is, is taking that faith and, and giving it life. And we are called to seriousness and sober-mindedness in living in obedience to the truth. That, that God would be producing this purified heart through the trials and through the blood of his lamb and, and, and through our lives. And he's feeding it all by his means of grace through the word. And then with forgiving hearts, realizing none of us are going to do this perfectly. We'll have seasons where we're good at it towards certain people, seasons where we're not good at it. And that's why the body comes together collectively and supports and helps and, and walks through. But that's sort of the mark, the character there at the end of Peter as he's talking, the elect exiles. Now as he moves into chapter 2 and 3 and you'll see he starts dealing more and more with relationships that we have to each other, whether it's husband-wife or, or the servant-master or just brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister, and how it works out as elect exiles, because all of this has happened in our hearts. It happens in community, and this faith needs to be 
working out in sincere, earnest, brotherly love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that indeed it does not return void. And so we are strengthened, we are encouraged by it. Lord, might you take it and effectively, by your spirit, write it on our hearts. We thank you it's the same word and the same spirit that the prophets were proclaiming, that Peter was proclaiming, that is proclaimed now. And the power rests, that indeed it is the, the voice of God being carried by the Spirit of God. And so we thank you for that. 